Hello, people. My name is Teddy Lee Brown. I refer to myself as a heretic because I don't let dogma come between me and my spiritual search. Dogma being, quote, a principle or set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true, end quote. Incontrovertible meaning, quote, not able to be denied or disputed, not open to question, indisputable, end quote. Some people out there cannot distinguish between dogma and faith. For me, it's my life's work, which makes me guilty of heresy and a heretic. Now, let's turn to part two of Dazed, Naked, and Confused in the Garden of Eden yet again. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, if true, is one of the most devastating and consequential scriptures of the whole of Genesis. The English Standard Version quotes God as saying to the woman, Eve, quote, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In part one of this podcast, we discussed how quickly Adam and Eve dissembled after the fall and started blaming everyone but themselves for what was happening. Adam even implied it was all God's fault when in his defense he said to God, quote, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate, end quote. In other words, hey, you're the one who created her and she was the one who picked the fruit and pushed it onto me. It would never have happened if I was in control. And according to the story, God must have believed him because he punished the woman by intensifying the pain of childbirth and ordering her to be submissive to her husband. Establishing a patriarchy that haunts women to this very day. Do I believe God is a misogynist? No, of course not. It's no coincidence that the narrator of the story adopts Adam's side of the story. He was most certainly a man who was taught to believe just that his whole life and put the words into God's mouth. And we'll return to this subject some other time. But first, let's examine the first part of that scripture. Quote, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. End quote. The reason this claim is of particular interest is because of what we now know about birth trauma and the role it plays in restricting and limiting consciousness, especially spiritual consciousness. In part one, we briefly discussed how someone experientially reconnecting 
to the experience of good womb, sometimes virtually experiences themselves as being in a paradise in the presence of God, to the degree that it was as real to them as the world in which they have lived all their lives. But that that changes with the onset of delivery when they are being physically expelled from paradise and forced to transit the life-threatening traumatic gauntlet that is the birth canal to arrive in a new world and a new life often struggling to survive. In future episodes, we will delve into much more detail about the relationship between birth trauma and our spirituality. But for now, we're going to turn our attention to what Jesus said to Nicodemus about being born again and its relationship to this conversation, including Eden, and the possibly deeper meaning of the phrase, born again. If you remember from an earlier podcast, I pointed out that the only time Jesus was reported to use the phrase born again was in the Gospel of John, written almost 100 years after his death. I'll read the part of the scripture I believe Jesus actually said. What follows is one of the author's well-known anti-Jew propaganda pieces meant to embarrass the Pharisees and dismiss them as ignorant fools. In reality, Jesus would have never talked to Nicodemus like that. Nicodemus admired and supported Jesus and had good reason to be confused about such esoteric knowledge. The scripture that follows is what the author interpreted Jesus to mean. John chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou dost except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, Ye must be born again. Most people have interpreted what Jesus said about being born again as being about spiritual rebirth. Orthodoxy interpreted the process 
as one exclusively initiated by water baptism, followed by a baptism in the Holy Spirit. Together, they are a ritualistic recreation of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. Consciousness research in recent decades has rediscovered that there is much more to it than that. That you can actually re-enter your mother's womb and be born again, spiritually. Once one understands that every experience we have ever had has been recorded deep within us and is accessible under the right conditions, reconnecting to fetal and birth memories is no longer unimaginable. What is unimaginable to those without such experiences is how powerful and spiritually healing they can be once you work through the pre-existing trauma. Death and rebirth experiences from various spiritual traditions are common during the process, and despite superficial differences, they share the same ultimate goal despite the differences in vocabulary. It's the orthodoxy, the insistence that their way is the only way that is the problem. I am very much looking forward to delving into consciousness research and experiential psychotherapies and much more detail in future podcasts. But for now, we have to head back to Eden. Now, no matter whether the increased pain during labor was a curse from God or the consequences of the knowledge of good and evil, the results were equally devastating. Every generation that followed were breaking down and becoming more dysfunctional than the previous one because of the inherited and newfound trauma and spiritual deprivation. Corruption and murder soon became so common that the God of Genesis decided to destroy humanity with the Great Flood and start all over again. That didn't work out nearly as well as he had hoped. Apparently, evil can swim. But the consequences of a painful labor and birth trauma is no joke. As crazy as it may sound to the uninitiated, events and experiences surrounding your birth forever play a role in who you become, for better or worse. The experiential integration of said trauma often leads to a spiritual awakening of unimaginable proportions, including virtual experiences of mythological realms, many of us previously considered the byproduct of our ancestors' overactive imaginations and ignorance. Turned out that there was something to those myths after all. Even if the Garden of Eden story is completely dismissed as myth because it's not history as we define it, it, like all great myths, has a lot to teach us all. Such myths, no matter how crazy and illogical they can seem to us, contain transcendent nuggets of truth about the human condition. For example, 
Considering the book of Genesis was written at least a thousand years before the introduction of the theory of evolution, the image it presented about the creation of the universe, the void, the sudden explosive emergence of creation out of nothingness, the birth of light, the geological and biological evolution of life on earth over a period of time, with man being the last to appear, is not that far off from what we presently understand about the evolution of life on earth. The biological sciences are no threat to the theistic evolutionist. Even if the story about Adam and Eve is considered a parable about our spiritual origins and not a history of our biological evolution, it, like Plato's allegory of the cave, deserves our thorough reflection and exploration and our search for a better understanding of ourselves. But the misapplication of myth, however, has done and continues to do great damage. The absolute insistence by a majority of evangelicals that the book of Genesis be interpreted literally word for word has understandably frustrated a lot of scientists over the years. The history between the church and science has always been contentious, sometimes downright brutal. Science and philosophy were considered heretical practices and treated accordingly by the orthodoxy obsessed for centuries. As Voltaire put it, quote, It is dangerous to be right in matters in which the established authorities are wrong. End quote. In time, even the church would have to admit it was wrong about their efforts to shut down science, but not before their credibility would be forever damaged in the eyes of everyone but their most devoted followers. Their dogma damaged the Christian faith and forever alienated their victims, be they religious or secular. Their unbridled lust for absolute power forever revealed their corruption of Christianity. But yet, the religious right wants to pick up right where their self-righteous predecessors left off and rule over our lives. No matter that their Protestant ancestors despised the church's interpretations and methods when applied to them, now their lack of self-awareness and hypocrisy makes a mockery of their faith. Their willful ignorance is the most destructive force Christianity faces today. It's no wonder why so many scientists give no credibility whatsoever to the evangelical worldview and justifiably fear the possibility of the religious conservatives reestablishing an oppressive theocracy. It certainly doesn't help that the evangelical right has long been as every bit as unhinged as their superstitious, spiritually dysfunctional ancestors, especially while under the influence of their chosen one, 
Donald Trump when they more than adequately demonstrated their absolute willingness to believe anything and everything with religious zeal and go medieval. Facts be damned. And then they would ironically proclaim their behavior as proof of their spiritual and intellectual superiority. Their forever disdain of science and scientists redirected at everything COVID. Everyone who took the pandemic seriously were accused and guilty of participating in an evil plot to steal their faith and religious freedoms while corralling them up for the devil. They, like their chosen one, could do no wrong and were absolutely right about everything. That's why, from a scientific perspective, religious fanaticism has nothing to offer but grief and can't be taken seriously in the search for objective truth. And I agree, wholeheartedly. But the problem is, some scientists have lost their objectivity because they have let religion define God and inadvertently threw God out with the bathwater. If I had to base a belief in the existence of God on what the evangelical right has to say, I wouldn't believe in God either. But to let their behavior, past and present, to be the determining factor of whether one should consider or not to believe in the existence of God is a mistake. Certainly, you're entitled to believe that their God doesn't exist. I'm sure you have a very long list of rational reasons of why not. I do. But you can't let them subconsciously make the decision for you. In the end, the issue of God has proven much more complicated than they or we could have ever imagined. As it turns out, much of science is as wrong about some of the issues as they are. The rest of us are caught somewhere in the middle, trying to figure out who we are and what the hell's going on. We believe in a God, but we also believe in evolution. We know the truth about our spirituality is not as simple as we are taught to believe in Sunday school or regular church services. But we intuitively know that we are more than biological happenstance. Our survival as a species may well depend on our desperately needed integration of science and spirituality, despite the lack of willingness by some on both sides of the issue. When I was a kid, the theory of evolution I was taught was the following. The odds of life emerging on Earth were so astronomical that we were very likely alone in the universe. Most scientists believed it would virtually be impossible 
for all the necessary elements to come together again in the incredibly unlikely way they did on Earth. That the emergence and evolution of life was pure chance, nothing more. And very unlikely to ever happen anywhere else ever again. They also believed at the time that early man migrated from Africa to Europe and evolved into Neanderthals. And that we, modern humans, were descendants of the Neanderthals. They taught that evolution's mechanism was a very slow, step-by-step, gradual process, and that the fossil record would eventually prove their case by documenting the ever-so-gradual changes over millions of years. No one is teaching those things anymore because they're not true. They were taught to us as being incontrovertible scientific truths when they were a flawed hypothesis at best. Does the fact that they got those things wrong mean that evolution didn't happen? Of course not. Any more than the mistakes people have made in their hypothesis about God means there's no God. In reality, they both exist. And the various sides have a lot to learn. When I was a kid, science was at the peak of its popularity. We would watch the marvel of science on live TV in the form of the space race and all the spectacular accomplishments, including taking man to the moon and back. My generation began to really believe that there was nothing science couldn't do if given the time and resources. We were being taught that we were living in the age of enlightenment, thanks to science. We could break the chains of superstition and ignorance that had plagued humanity with the use of the scientific method and separate truth from fiction for once and for all. And we believed it. Did we realize that science and scientists weren't immune from the human condition and were as fallible as anyone else? No. I, like many around me, chose to believe science over religion. From our new perspective at the time, you would have to be an idiot not to. Evangelicals would claim Science was responsible for the loss of faith in my generation, without mentioning that it was their hypocrisy that drove us away in the first place. Somewhere along the way, embittered scientists became a mere image of the people they loved to hate. Egotistical, arrogant know-it-alls strutting their superiority and dismissing others as ignorant because they don't share their paradigms. They have the gospel according to science, and that's that. We live in a mechanistic, materialistic universe, and all that spiritual mumbo-jumbo talk is horseshit. 
And that's despite the fact that science has been for some time slowly but surely proving their theories of reality wrong. Yay, science! What I was taught way back then was a creation myth. Much of what is being taught now is a creation myth, destined to be discarded for a better model. Until then, humility is an absolute necessity for objectivity and good science. There is no shame in not being a know-it-all. In my humble opinion, science and religion have a lot to learn from consciousness research. But as things stand, trying to convince them of that is like trying to prove to someone that a microscopic world exists when they refuse to look through a microscope and acknowledge it because it would undermine their preconceived beliefs. Or refuse to look through a telescope to see that the universe is much larger and more complex place than they could have ever imagined. Consciousness research is a microscope and telescope in one, offering unparalleled insight into the human condition and possibly our last best chance to know and understand who we are before it is too late. Next time, we will talk about some of that consciousness research. My name is Teddy Lee Brown, and I'm proud to be a heretic, and so should you. Check out our page on Patreon, people, and consider sponsoring this podcast. Or donate directly at heresyisgood.com, where you can also find some t-shirts and hoodies. Until next time, be the best heretic you can be.